Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. One thing evolved. 
Guy Consort with Evolve. Good evening and thank you once again for joining me as I attempt to illuminate some of the many wonders of our multi-dimensional universe. Tonight I want to share with you my very first paranormal investigation that took place in Van Nuys, California almost 40 years ago to the day. It was mid-January 1970 and while I was still in high school at the time, I was already a young budding parapsychologist eager to get the opportunity to investigate a real haunted house. I had read everything on the topic that I could get my hands on by this time, including books by J.B. Ryan, Susie Smith, Nandor Fordor, and one of my all-time heroes, Hans Holzer. Back in those days, it was uh, a really new field in and people did not always share their personal stories with strangers, making it difficult to find uh, investigation opportunities, especially if you're a kid still in high school. The only people I knew that actually had paranormal phenomenon occurring uh, in their home was my aunt and uncle who lived in Van Nuys in Southern California. Their house was uh, very active with all types of paranormal happenings, and it would be a perfect place for me to investigate. However, my uncle was a hardcore skeptic and refused to accept the possibility of a ghost, even when he saw things happening right before his eyes firsthand. His explanations for the many events were, uh, were so absurd they were comical. Because of this, he would not allow anyone to speak about its presence. Consequently, the chance of me ever getting, uh, getting in there for any type of investigation was next to none. Then one day, I learned that they were going away for a couple days, and my aunt, knowing of my interest in the case and wanting some answers for herself, told me that I could spend the night there and house-sit for them, or should I say ghost-sit, uh, if I was interested. If I was interested... I accepted her offer and told her I would be back there as soon as I could get a ride. She told me where the uh, spare key was and, and not to tell her husband about it, regardless of what happened, uh, what I happened to find out. I asked a friend to go with me and help me with the investigation, and he said he would, which, which was cool because he had the car and I didn't. Well, the big night came. 
And as I waited for my friend to show up, I double-checked all my gear, which in the 1970s consisted of a borrowed 35mm camera, a flashlight, a notepad and pencil, a compass, and, uh, and a photometer that I borrowed from the physics lab at school, which was basically a weather vane-like device in a glass vacuum chamber used to demonstrate the pressure of electromagnetic waves. The last piece of equipment in my arsenal was my pride and joy, a reel-to-reel battery-operated tape recorder. Yeah, I said reel-to-reel. You see, at that time in history, most paranormal investigations were done with old-school techniques, which still have some advantages uh, even today. We didn't have portable camcorders, EMF meters, or infrared surveillance equipment. We used primitive recording devices, paper and pencils for taking notes, and 35mm cameras. Most of all, we relied on our own senses and trained awareness to detect phenomenon. Today, with all of our high-tech equipment, we get lost in the technology and spend most of our time looking through the camera lenses or um, at the faces of our EMF meters and we tend to lose the human side of the experience and in the process we overlook a lot that our equipment cannot see. We also miss a lot of the thrill and excitement of the adventure. Today I will sometimes go into an investigation naked. Um, I, I mean I have clothes on. <laughs> it's uh, I don't go naked but uh, I take nothing but my eyes and ears and inner sense as I feel my way through the darkness. It may not bring back uh, any evidence, but I will always remember the thrill of the experience, and sometimes that is what we paranormal investigators are really after in the first place. Anyway, back to 1970 and the investigation. After triple-checking all my gear and making sure I had new batteries and plenty of film, I finally called to see where my friend was. Turns out his parents said that he could not go after all, so I was not only without an assistant, I was without a ride too. It wasn't until the next day that I finally procured another ride, but that left me only that night to investigate and I had to be out by morning. I got into the house about two in the afternoon, let myself in with the hidden key, and immediately I felt as though I was being watched. Suddenly, I was having doubts that I could actually go through with this alone, especially when I knew I had to go lights out if this investigation was going to be successful. I sat just inside the front door on the sofa, trying to see if it was my imagination or was something actually watching me. No matter how I analyzed the feeling, it was not going away. So I decided I should check the house out by making sure all the windows and doors were locked, looking under the beds and in the closets to make sure no one was uh, hiding there thinking they would play a trick on me. After I was convinced the house was devoid of any human entities, I settled back with a coke and started going over my notes concerning 
the known history of the haunting. Based on what my aunt and cousins had told me about their own experiences in the house, it all started about two years prior when they first moved into the house. This was a middle-class neighborhood in the better part of town, and the house was only about 10 years old when they took possession of it. After uh, settling in, my uncle went up to the attic and, and found a few items uh, left behind the, by the previous tenants, including what looked like a handmade coffin about three feet long. It looked like it was made for a small child or a baby. After everyone put their two cents in on what should be done with the coffin, uh, my uncle decided to chop it up and burn it. Probably not the wisest thing, but uh, he did. He chopped it up and burned it in the fireplace. That night was when the events began with, uh, with just simple knockings on the walls and doors. Very subtle, but distinct. Over the next uh, few nights, the knockings became louder and more frequent. And my uncle being the die-hard skeptic that he is, blamed it on uh, the house settling or rodents in the wall. After checking all these uh, things out and finding none of these to be the case, he still would not accept the possibility of a ghost. Over the next few weeks, the activity increased, with lights turning on and off and even lampshades unscrewing and moving across the room while no one was home. My uncle's explanation of this was that um, there was a draft in the house that caused the lampshades to spin around and around and lift up and land 15 feet away on a sofa for three days in a row. One night, while my uh, two cousins, who slept in the same double bed, uh, tried to get to sleep after hearing an unusual amount of wrappings uh, on the wall, the blanket covering them slowly lifted up and hung in mid-air at their feet and dropped to the floor as they screamed for their dad. Another time, the very distinct and strong smell of cologne worn by my older cousin, who was in Vietnam at the time, permeated the entire house and caused a frenzy of phone calls to the Navy from my aunt trying to find out if he was okay. This same cousin had two children, age two and three, living in the house at this time, who uh, one day mysteriously ended up with uh, candy bars, and there were no candy bars in the house at all. When they were asked by my aunt uh, where they came from, where they got the candy bars from, the three-year-old uh, said that the nice man who picked them up gave the candy bars to him and then walked through the wall. After that, the, uh, the first adult sighting took place when my aunt stepped out of her bedroom into the hallway at about 4 a.m. in the morning and a glowing mist came at her from one end of the hallway, went right past her and shot up through the ceiling. She stood frozen. She didn't know what to do, what to say. She couldn't even scream. Needless to say, everyone but my uncle was very unnerved about all these events. This uh, last event took place about uh, six months prior to me 
being there on, uh, on the night of my investigation. As darkness approached, I found myself turning on every light in the house, trying to convince myself that nothing would harm me and that what is not there in the light is also not there in the dark. I think I saw that on TV or something. Regardless, it wasn't working, and I was thinking about uh, backing out of the entire investigation. I think it was the realization that if I did not face my fears right here and now, then I would have to give up on my dream of being a parapsychologist forever. And uh, that kind of shook me uh, shook me up a little bit and gave me the courage to uh, proceed. You have to remember that at this time I had no formal shamanic training and I was totally unaware of how to protect myself. All I had was my flashlight. So I decided if I was going to do this I was going to do it right and I grabbed my flashlight, my tape recorder, and my camera and started to turn off all the lights in the house. After the last light went out, I felt a shiver go up my back, and the play of shadows from the outside street lights were totally freaking me out. But I closed my eyes, I took a deep breath, and I pressed record on the recorder, and proceeded to every room where I would ask if anyone was there and why they were in the house. Then I would snap a couple of pictures and occasionally turn my flashlight on to see where I was going or to illuminate a dark, uh, creepy corner. Just as I left the master bedroom, I stopped dead in my tracks because the living room lamp had just turned on. My heart was beating so fast I swore I could hear it as I called out, Hello? No answer. So I slowly crept down the... Uh, the hallway half expecting someone or something to jump out at me at any moment. When I reached the end of the hallway, I held my flashlight up as a club and lunged into the living room with a loud yell. Nothing was there, but the lamp was still on. So I turned it off, and trust me, that was hard to go back to lights out at this point, but I had to do it for myself. Then I thought that um, maybe the switch was shorting out. So I unplugged the lamp from the wall and walked through uh, the house with my flashlight into the kitchen. Just as I took a drink of water from a glass, the living room light turned back on again and I dropped the glass and yelled. I stood there for about two minutes trying to get the courage to go back and see how the light could be on after I unplugged it. Even now, as I relate the story to you, I get goosebumps and chills up my back. I finally went into the living room, and the lamp I had unplugged was on. I remember having tears welling up in my eyes, tears of pure fear, as I peeked behind the sofa to see the lamp plugged back into the wall. Seeing this, I yelled out, Oh my God, and staggered backward against the wall. This was no short. This was a ghost playing with me, taunting me. I was terrified. But I figured if I can get through this, I can get through anything the future might hold. So I left the room 
intending to leave the light on. But as soon as I entered the kitchen again, the light went off and I ran through the kitchen into the hallway knowing I had only two more rooms to investigate and I would have won and at least proven myself. I made it through the next room with my flashlight on all the time. I had had enough of this investigating in complete darkness. Upon re-entering the main hallway, I discovered one more common problem encountered by investigators to this very day. Battery drain. My flashlight went completely dead and no amount of pounding it in my hand was going to bring it back. I did not have extra batteries because people did not know of this problem in the early days of paranormal investigating and since it would be almost 40 years before I would find the solution to this problem, I found myself in the dark. By the way, if um, any one of you would like to know how to prevent this battery drainage problem, I will be giving a link at the end of the show with my email, and if you contact me and ask me about it, I'll be happy to share the technique with you. So there I was, in a dark house, standing in a hallway only partially lit by shadows cast by outside streetlights. And I was not sure where my last room was, or how to get out of the house without going back through that living room. I started feeling the wall for a light switch or a door opening as I walked down the hall and then I found a door and I turned the corner and entered the room. I froze instantly, unable to move or even scream because standing there right before me in the dim reflected light was a shadow of a person looking directly at me. I thought I was going to die right then and there as I reached for the spot where I thought a light switch should be. I hit the switch and a roar echoed through the room and a light came on and I saw the evil horror staring at me with the most terrifying look on its face. I screamed and the figure screamed back at me because it was me. Standing in front of a mirror in the hallway bathroom, the roar was the fan exhaust switch that I had hit at the same time. I started yelling and cussing at myself for being such an idiot. And then I broke into kind of a maniacal laugh, realizing that this was the last room and I'd done it. I had enough. I had to get out. So I ran out, leaving the lights on to the end of the hallway and out the back door into the patio area. It was just about sunrise so I decided to walk to the corner and use a payphone to have someone pick me up. So this was my first investigation of many to follow over the next four decades. But never again did I get the chance to go back to this same house as my relatives moved shortly afterwards. But not because of the haunting. At least not according to my uncle. Oh, and uh, I later found out that I had captured voices on my tape recorder, calling my name and then laughing, probably at uh, my fumbling antics. Before I move on to other topics, I would like to continue my New Year shout-outs to a very special friend and colleague of mine, Tracy Savage. Tracy, you have more than once made me laugh with your sense of humor while reminding me of why I still follow my scientific pursuits in the light of my shamanic enlightenment. 
You also keep me on my toes trying to keep up with that mind of yours as we talk and I read your blogs. Like science, you are a candle in the dark, Tracy. Thank you for all you do. I look forward to working on future projects with you. Now let's take a break with a little more Gaia Consort performing Just Because.
Celtic roots? Are your ancestors from Ireland or Scotland or Wales? From Cornwall, Brittany, the Isle of Man or Gaul? Do you love stories and tales? Ancient myths, legends and folklore of the Celtic peoples? Do you want to hear more about King Arthur, Gwydion, Taliesin, Cuchulain, wild magic and the realms of the other world? Do you want to hear about the old gods, druids and fairies in a way that they're not just dusty, dry words on a page? Then you need the Celtic Myth Podshow, available from CelticMythPodshow.com. In the days when the world was young, the days when the air was clean and the dew was fresh upon the grass... Listen well, for I have tidings for you. Warriors are coming from across the sea. Strange. Take this message back with you. Tell the Fearbold they must give my people either battle or live in peace in half of Erin. On my word, I should prefer to give you half of Erin than to face your weapons. The Celtic Myth Podshow will bring you the bravery of heroes and heroines, the magnificent pantheon of gods and goddesses, and the magic and wonder of druids, fairies, and folklore. Our ancestors would listen to these stories as told to them by their bards. They wouldn't read them in books. This podcast brings the magic of sound back into our legends. A new episode comes out twice a month and builds into a complete collection of tales from Celtic mythology. So just sit down, get comfortable, and join us every other week. Listen to news, chat, and a story from Celtic mythology with the Celtic Myth Podshow from CelticMythPodshow.com. That's CelticMythPodshow.com. And now, for your listening pleasure, I'm going to turn up the heat and present the wickedly insatiable Brandy Schwan reading A Warrior, A Raven. A Warrior, A Raven. I lie face down on my bed, your heavy weight heaving breath against my back. Strong body, nude, formed over my curves, feeling your every muscle pulse. Exhaustion's panting heat cross my neck, sweat enraptures last Christ slick your skin. Your sublime structure, I should be crushed. Beneath you, safety is a god upon my back. Let my lungs scream, I am your fortunate prisoner. What evil could touch me here? Oh, do speak. Wicked words spat from your sharp tongue, biting, dominant, seething words these keen ears covet insatiably. I am untouchable, breakable only for your warrior's grasp. My sleek form becomes your silver weapon. Here the razor's edge of death unsheathe. Evil's woman, you called out. Raven perched your solid shoulder. Care for me. No demon should forsake you, thine enemy. Those whom they do fear my blades. Sharp talons leave the wounds. Ah, darling, you are safe. Carnivorous wars, my playground. 
Do you pin me not to meet mine eyes? You might find yourself kept. You called out now. Allow me, I might turn around. Taste power. These lips consume your wanting mouth. Oh, red. <sighs> mm.
now, news from the lab. This episode of News from the Lab will be the beginning of a series of lessons and experiments centered around the scientific evaluation of the device known as the Ghost Box or Frank's Box. It is my intention to offer and test out my theories regarding the hyperdimensional dynamics of this device with the hopes of bringing a better understanding of how the device works as well as the nature of the entities using it to bridge the gap between our world and the world of spirit. Perhaps in the process we can clear up 
the, uh, the many misconceptions about this device and lay down guidelines for those that wish to experiment with the device personally. It is also my hope that this evaluation and series of experiments will help to educate those who might otherwise fall prey to the exploitation of new technologies. So with that said, let me briefly describe this device before I get into the theories of how it works. For a complete explanation of this device and its history, I would like to direct you to one of the best articles I have ever read on the topic, written by Rosemary Ellen Guiley. It can be found on her website, www.visionaryliving.com. Rosemary is one of the leading researchers in the world on this device, and is uh, the person who personally introduced me to it. Basically, the Ghost Box is a radio receiver that contains a voltage-controlled tuner with a scanning oscillator allowing it to change frequencies at a set speed controlled by both capacitance and resistance within the circuit. It is my theory, and one I hope to prove, that this concept of how an oscillator works with a capacitance is a key feature to why the device is able to bridge the hyperdimensional barriers of space and time. I included the parameters of time as a dimensional scope of this device because time and its illusion of linearity are exactly that, an illusion that exists only in our physical world. Once you step outside the vibrational ring we call physical reality, time ceases to exist and past, present, and future form an amalgamation known simply as the now. This means that messages from entities using this or any other type of interdimensional device could, from our perspective, be coming from the past, present, or even the future. It might also be coming from a point in physical space beyond the location of this device, uh, as distance seems not to be a factor when attempting to bridge the communication gap, as I will soon demonstrate in a series of experiments with my good friend and colleague, Carly Rose. Carly Rose's mastery of this device is nothing short of amazing. Her uncanny ability to perceive and mentally track multiple streams of sound patterns is unlike anything I have ever encountered in anybody. Coupled with her significant physical mediumship abilities, which play an important role in energy transference within the buffering zone or veil between the worlds, provides a powerful tool that consistently generates paranormal uh, phenomenon. This does not mean that you have to be a physical medium to use the box or have superhuman hearing. Anyone can learn to use this box, and I do mean anyone. The concept that there are only a limited number of people in the world that can use this device successfully is absolute nonsense and bred as a product of ego or exploitation. True, there are people that have natural abilities at this skill, just like any other human skill. But if you practice, you too will be able to train yourself to get good results. Before we get into the working theory of the device, there is yet another misconception that seems to be hovering around this device. 
While it is not impossible, it is highly unlikely that you will be able to sit down and call forth anyone you want at any given time. Even an adept physical medium like Carly Rose cannot control who comes to speak with the users of the box. Schematically speaking, there, there are many factors and variables that exist in the spirit world which affect the probability of dialing up a lost loved one at any given moment. One of which is the deceptive nature of many of the spirits that dwell close to our physical world reality. There is a distinct likelihood that a trickster spirit will hear your attempts to communicate and intentionally mislead you for whatever reasons. We, we don't really have a clue why that is. Many of these spirits have the ability to see within your memory, giving them even more ammunition to perpetuate their hoax. So keep this in mind. I suspect that a large portion of information being fed to people trying to make contact through any means is basically a lie. So, how does this device break through the dimensional barriers that separate our world from the world of uh, spirit? It is my theory, one that I will attempt to prove in future experiments, that the device, known as a ghost box, does not reach into the world of spirit. But it does open up small, short-lived portals that usually close in microseconds, which allows spiritual energy from the other side to slip through just long enough to manipulate subtle energy fields within the device. As a result of past experimentation, I suspect that this is accomplished during the microsecond capacitance discharges of the timing capacitors within the scanning feature of this device. Analysis of the voices or whispers that manifest from this device seem to occur just after a capacitance discharge more often than at any other time. Future experiments designed around this theory will hopefully bring validation. These experiments will be conducted by myself and Carly Rose beginning in about a week and will be ongoing as we attempt to contribute an understanding of this type of communication to the scientific arena. Our experiments will be conducted both in person in a laboratory uh, and separate over a distance when we can't be together in the same environment at the same time. This actually works quite well at a distance since time and space have no meaning to spirit. We will keep you updated through this radio show as well as any publications we release in the future. One last bit of advice that I will leave you with is that when you listen to the recordings from the box or use one live yourself, do not assume that the communications will come from the words being spoken on the radio stations. While some of the words that come through may very well be from spirit, it is the undertones often sounding like whispers that contain most of the spirit communications. Quite often, you, uh, you do have to amplify the sounds to actually be able to perceive them. But there are people like Carly Rose who, who can track them individually with their ears and mind, probably as a result of her physical mediumship. I have not yet determined that. 
One word of caution about using other people to interpret the sounds and messages of spirit for you while you're using this device. Those that charge for this service, especially huge amounts of money, must be approached with caution and offer some kind of validation for their abilities before you should consider using them. While there are people who can do this with a certain amount of success, they almost never consider the trickster quality of the spirits that they talk to. Unfortunately, I do not know of anyone offering this service for a fee that I could recommend to you. Please tune in next week as I take you further into this subject and give you examples of what these spirit whispers sound like. I would like to thank all the artists who supplied me with music for this show, and a special thanks goes out to the Midnight Syndicate for the background music in many of my segments. You will find their links on my webpage www.theshamansbrew.com. You can also reach me with comments or suggestions for the show at marcus at theshamansbrew.com. I am now going to play this show out with a metal blast from the past by the cult performing Firewoman. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.